Beloved, our God calls us uh, to worship. And I want you to hear what it is that our God wants for us from Romans 14 and 15. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Beloved, God is building a kingdom, and we are that kingdom. And what he is doing is he is shaping a worshiping community by his grace. And that grace is an all-encompassing grace, an all-encompassing grace that shows us who we truly are, rebellious and sinful. And that same grace shows us what we truly need, a Savior, a Redeemer in Jesus. And Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died to make us his very own, his sons and his daughters. And so let's confess together this morning our rebelliousness, our sinfulness, and let us confess our Savior, our Christ as well. And we're going to do that using the confession of sin that will show up on your screen. And then after we do that together, uh, we'll take a few moments to more silently and, and privately come and confess our sin to our God. But let us confess our sin together. Faithful God, you have pursued us with an unbreaking, never stopping, always and forever love. Ever present, all knowing, all powerful, this is who you are. We confess we are spiritually complacent, apathetic, and hard hearted. Our spirit is willing but our flesh is weak. We do not desire to listen to your voice. We do not want to follow your lead. Our hearts are suspicious of your ways. We are drawn toward fix-it methods to better manage our lives. We rebel in countless ways. Left to ourselves, we are completely empty. For Jesus' sake, forgive us. In Jesus, you have shown us the fullness of your justice and love. His death and resurrection are our death to sin and resurrection to new life. Holy Spirit, fill us with the reality that the work of Jesus is everything. Complete what you have started. All is grace. All is gift. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before your God. Confess your sin and see his grace to you in Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us in Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, hear God's assurance of his grace, assurance of his forgiveness and his pardon to you, which is bought by Christ with his very own blood. 
And this comes from Exodus chapter 34 as well as Joel chapter 2 and actually in numerous other places in the Old Testament. The words that I'm about to speak to you are words of forgiveness that God's people have heard for thousands of years. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Beloved, we are forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. And now let us declare our faith in our God, in Christ, and what he has done. And we're going to use the Nicene Creed again this week as we recognize that we are a part of a much larger story than just ourselves. And so we confess what the church has confessed for thousands of years. So I will ask you, and then we will respond together. Beloved of Christ, what is it that we believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. It is my joy to look at the scriptures with you this morning. We're continuing our study through the Bible this year, and this morning we are in the prophet Joel. So I just have a couple verses I'm going to read to you from Joel chapter 2. And before I do that, I want to remind you that if you remember the numbers 3, 4, and 5, then you will understand the framework from which we are walking through the Bible together. So three loves, the four-part story, and then five threads. The five threads are these. God has always had a people. He has always been building his church. The second thread Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Three, the third thread, grace. God pursues, God initiates, God 
saves. All is grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. He did it. It is finished. And five, everything, and I mean everything, is moving toward Jesus. Your life, my life, the world, events, history itself, everything is moving toward Jesus. Now, I'll highlight those five threads for you because the passage that we're going to look at today enumerates and illustrates all those threads. And you remember the four-part story, creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, and the three loves. Love God, love people, love city. I wanted to mention those to you again just to hopefully get in your mind and hopefully you can be thinking about these as we go through the scriptures each week. So I want to read to you from God's Word just these two verses from Joel chapter 2. They are the pinnacle prophecy in the book of Joel. Everything is flowing into these verses and out of these verses. And these are very significant verses in the history of God's people. And I hope to show you that today for sure. Let's look at this. Listen as I read God's word. This is truth. You can bank all that you are on these words. Hear this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. You are gracious. You are kind. You love people like us. You have a plan for the world. You have established it from the beginning, and you have been working it out throughout all history. We are here today because of your grace and mercy. The hairs on our head is numbered. Our days are numbered. You know our thoughts before we know them and the words before they come out of our mouth. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts, not our thoughts. You are much higher and more exalted and glorious than we are. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for summoning us into your presence. Feed our souls with your word this morning. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would feed our souls in such a way that we would sense that we have been kissed by the Almighty that we would know that we have been touched, that we would know that we have been cared for and provided for, that we would know our Redeemer and see salvation in clearer, deeper, more necessary ways for us, for our world, for our friends, for our neighbors, for life itself. So lead us to Christ, we pray, for your sake, for your glory, for our good. Amen. As you can tell, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the prophets in the Old Testament together, and it's probably important that I take just a a skinny minute and tell you a little bit about prophecy. Oftentimes, when we think of prophecy, we think of prophecy in in this way. We think of prophecy as being some type of code, and in order to understand that code, we have to understand a lot of details, and the more detail you get, the more the code is unlocked and the clearer the code is. And oftentimes that's driven by fear and oftentimes that's ultimately driven by the idea of escaping. On the other end of the spectrum, we can think about prophecy in this way, that it is completely irrelevant. 
that it really doesn't matter at all. And to be quite honest with you, neither of those, neither of those are right. Neither of those ways are the appropriate ways to think about or look at prophecy. Through prophecy, God continually tells his people that their dreams and visions for the world and their dreams and visions for their own lives, way too small. That's what God does with prophecy. He challenges his people to realize their plans are just way too small. God cares more about everything than we care about anything. And he communicates that to us through prophecy. Now, that leads us to this. And this is the point this morning from these verses in Joel chapter 2. This is the point that I hope you can take away. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. You can think about it. You can wrestle with it. This is the idea. These verses are telling us what God wants for you, what God wants for me, what God wants for us. These verses are telling us what God wants for us. So maybe you can pose that as a question. What, what do you think God wants for you? Well, these verses tell us. So let's jump in. The first thing God wants for us is this. God wants us to come to grips with our emptiness. God wants us to come to grips with our emptiness. Now, the prophet Joel is really, really hard to date. It's really, really hard to figure out when he wrote this book and what time frame. The reason for that is because Joel is immersed. The prophet Joel is immersed in Old Testament books. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Ezekiel. He quotes way back from the Pentateuch. He is thoroughly immersed in the books of the Old Testament, which makes it really hard to figure out exactly when he's writing. Well, when Joel writes his book and when Joel communicates to us the word and mind of God, Joel does it around this idea of the day of the Lord. So if you were to go back and read the three chapters that Joel writes, you would find that phrase several times in his prophecy. And the day of the Lord seems to be this. The day of the Lord is when people have a heightened experience of God's presence. The day of the Lord is when people have a heightened experience of God's presence. So, Joel talks about the past day of the Lord and how the people have experienced God in the past. He's talking about the present day of the Lord when he wrote this, meaning that his people were going to have a heightened experience of God's power and presence then. And he writes about a future day of the Lord, which is what we read from together this morning, that there's a time coming in which God's people will have a heightened experience of God's presence. Now, Joel seems to focus our attention from the very beginning on an event that happened. This event occurred when the locusts came and locusts invaded the land. You can go back and read about it in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. Locusts invaded an agricultural uh, time frame. They, they 
invaded this agricultural economy and decimated everything. Now, you can read details about that and you can think about that. And Joel has all kinds of images to talk about it. Um, But I did a little research on locust invasion this week because I don't remember the last time when our country or North Carolina or Eastern North Carolina had a locust invasion. And I realized that in our own current events, just last month, there was a massive locust invasion in Somalia and Ethiopia in which crops were decimated everywhere. I did a little more research and found out that difference between a grasshopper and a locust happens to be a change in serotonin levels. You know, grasshoppers are usually the kind of creatures that like to stay rather solitary and they don't really bother anything. They just kind of hop around. But when serotonin levels are off, they turn into a locust. And the technical term that I found to describe a locust is not solitary like the grasshopper, but the technical term to describe a locust is gregarious. Isn't that hilarious? So locusts become this outward, uh, uh, extroverted uh, uh, creature that wants to hang out with others and, and multiply and multiply and become increasingly crazed as this multiplication happens. And you probably have guessed, if you haven't yet, but I'll tell you, locusts have an insatiable appetite. They eat their body weight or more every single day. So when you have hundreds of millions or billions of locusts invading into a region, they decimate everything. They lay all of the crops bare. They empty the fields. And you see, Joel is using this plague that happened to describe, to use as a metaphor to describe the spiritual condition of God's people. The locusts have decimated the land and the land is empty. And that is a metaphor for understanding our relationship with God. That left to ourselves, we are empty. As a matter of fact, Joel is so descriptive in saying this that if you look at chapter 1 of Joel's uh, book and verse 4, you'll find out that Joel basically says this. This is Dave's living translation. This is not literal. Joel basically says that the first, the first invasion came of the locusts and they, they ate all the big things. And then the, the medium-sized locusts came in and they, and they ate everything that was left. And then the small guys came in and they ate all the little things. And then there were tiny locusts and they, and they got all the scraps. So at the end of the day, everything was gone. All was empty. You see, Joel is wanting us to think about our own emptiness. So if we're going to understand Joel's prophecy, if we're going to get the word of God into us, we have to think about our own emptiness. Do you feel empty right now? Are there things going on in your life that leave you empty? You know, for some of you, I know that you've had reduction in your wages. Some of you perhaps have lost your jobs or been furloughed. You know, in an agrarian culture, in an agrarian society, if a locust plague came, it would wipe out your job and the ability that you had to gather resources you needed to provide for your family. Maybe you feel that. 
Maybe you feel empty in that way. If locusts invaded some place, it would also make you wonder about, well, what's going to happen in the future? We're going to have to replant everything and wait again. And what are we going to do in the meantime until the harvest comes next time? What are we going to do? So you can feel empty about the future and not knowing what's going to happen. Maybe personally and individually, you could feel like a failure because this happened. And you might feel the responsibility to provide for your family. Most of us do. And when everything is decimated, you can think to yourself, I just feel empty. I know I'm supposed to do this, and I know I'm supposed to do these things, but I'm not. And you can feel empty. You can feel empty after you exercise for a period of time, right? You know what it's like to feel empty. You know what it's like to have a newborn at home and go through another round of sleeplessness. Because in the morning, when you've hardly slept, man, you just feel empty. You know what it's like when you wake up the next morning after you've lost a loved one. There's that sense of emptiness. You see, we all feel this sense of emptiness. Oftentimes because we're putting our hope in all kinds of things and yet they don't always deliver. You know, we know what it feels to be empty. And Joel is saying in a spiritual sense, we're empty before God. See, our rebellion against God always leaves us empty. It may feel good in the moment. Sin always feels good in that moment. But then over time, we realize it doesn't really deliver at all. What God wants for you, what God wants for me, what God wants for us is to come to grips with our emptiness. Sin always leaves us empty. The second thing that God wants for us is repentance. Throughout Joel's three chapters, he talks about repentance over and over. The clearest picture of repentance is found in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where God says, return to me, return to me with your whole heart, rend your hearts and not your garments. God's talking about repentance. The emptiness of sin should always lead us to turn back to God. You see, God wants us to give him our whole heart because he knows that we are oftentimes giving him a piece, oftentimes a sliver, sometimes a chunk. He wants it all. He wants our whole heart. And the reason he says that he wants us to rend our hearts and not our garments is because it's easy to put on an outward show. It's easy to act as if we know we've done something wrong, but yet in our hearts, our hearts aren't really convicted so that we turn to God. You see, he's kind of playing on this imagery that there are times that we can put on this outward show that, that something is wrong, but yet we're just sorry we got caught. And God is always after our heart, always. He always wants all that we are, our whole heart. 
So what God wants for us is repentance. Here's a definition of repentance that we've used here at the church often. This does not come from me. I read this in a book. If you want to know more about it, feel free to contact me. Here's the definition. Repentance is turning from as much as you know about your rebellion and giving as much as you know of your own heart to as much as you know of God. Repentance is turning from as much as you know of your rebellion against God and giving as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. And those things will increase throughout your life. So repentance is an ongoing thing. We never move beyond repentance. And the thing that's specific and special about Christianity and the message of Jesus is that to be a follower of Christ, to be a follower of Christ means we not only repent of the bad things that we've done or the bad thoughts that we've had, it's that we also repent of the good things that we've done from selfish motives. You know, those things that we do all the time that make us feel better than other people that, oh, by the way, happen to line up with something that God says? You see, God wants our whole heart. He doesn't want us just to acknowledge our shortcomings. He wants us to acknowledge that oftentimes the things that we do that line up with what God says often is for self. It's what we put our identity in. It's what we put our hope in, what we have done. Well, I'd love to give you two illustrations about, about repentance and teach two things, two more things about repentance. The first thing is this. Repentance in the way God talks about it is turning from something to something else. Repentance is a change of direction, going one way and then going another way. Repentance is a change of direction. Now, when I was in seminary, one of my professors gave this illustration. I thought it was great. It's been really helpful to me throughout the years. You see, in our lives, going from one direction to another, we can understand that through different size vehicles, if you will, different size transportation things. Like if you're on a battleship, it's really, really hard to change direction, isn't it? The battleship is so huge, it takes miles and miles and miles before the battleship can change course and go from one direction to another. It's a little bit easier to change direction if you're in a plane, but it still takes time to change direction if you're flying in an airplane. It's a little bit faster if you're in a car. Yeah, it may mean that you have to go to the next red light or you have to find a place where you can make a U-turn. Or it may mean that you have to turn left and then go into another parking lot and come back out and turn right again. It's hard to change direction. It's a little bit easier if you're on a bicycle. It's even easier if you're riding a skateboard. Repentance is changing direction. And there are some things in our lives that are like a battleship. There are some sins that we struggle with where there is so much momentum going in one direction that it takes so long to change direction. 
We sent this email out yesterday, given some resources from our denomination about racial tensions. You know, that kind of tension, that kind of struggle, that kind of sin is awfully deep. Then we would encourage you again to read that and think about it. Think about hearing history from other perspectives and think about expanding all of us should think about expanding our understanding of our country and the moment in which we live in. It can take a long time to turn a battleship. That's why it's important to read and to think and to repent. Even if that repentance is slow, even if that repentance takes years and years and years. There are other things in our lives that are like turning a plane or turning a car. And there are some things in our lives that are like riding a skateboard and immediately turning and going a different direction, that we just need to stop. And by God's grace, we can do that. But God's grace is also at work with us in changing deep things within us. God dealing with our pride takes a long time. Oftentimes, catastrophes happen to happen, have to happen in our lives in order for us to come to a realization of how arrogant that we are. If we have deep down struggles with production and we don't know how to rest, it takes a long time for God to turn us to go into another direction. If we have deep issues like control, always being right, being argumentative, it takes time for the grace of God to work in our lives and change direction. And don't forget that. I say this to you as an encouragement that repentance, changing one direction and going into another, happens over an entire lifetime. So be patient with those that have sins that are really deep, that take a long time. Be patient with yourself, but grow in dependence on the Spirit and know that this is what He is doing in our lives, is changing us. Well, the second illustration is this. Repentance is not so much about sin as it is about Jesus. Now, again, it's going from something to something. Repentance is not so much about sin as it is about Jesus. I remember in my life, I used to think back when I was younger, and I still think this, I'm sure, that repentance is bad. The repentance is bad. And there's a time in my life in which I began to realize that repentance is not always bad. As a matter of fact, repentance is good. Changing direction in life, moving from something to something else is good. Turning from what breaks God's heart, our rebellion, to Jesus is actually really, really good. I remember when this dawned on me. It was a little bit more than 10 years ago. Uh, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you have probably heard this song. It goes something like this. And no, I'm not going to sing it for you. But I'll tell you the words. It goes something like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. Remember that? It's repeated three times. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Remember that? And then I heard a newer version of that song. And the newer version of the song goes like this. I never wanted 
to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. No turning back. And my mind was blown. Because you see, it's not that we don't decide for Jesus. We should do that every single day. Not minimizing a decision for Jesus at all. But the reality is that I never wanted Jesus. And the reality is he came to rescue me. And because of his rescue, I can't go back. Because of what he has done. You see, my whole life has changed. And even though I need to decide for Jesus all the time, every day, being anchored in the reality that he rescued me when I didn't want him, reoriented my entire life in the way I thought about repentance. You see, I had this tendency to think of repentance as getting something from God. And then I began to understand, oh, repentance is illustrating that I have the favor of God. Repentance illustrates that life with God in my heart exists. And it is beautiful. You see, repentance is good. Repentance is a gift, and it's what God wants for us. He wants us to realize that we're empty so that we can turn from that to someone, to Jesus. So what God wants for you and me is to come to grips with our emptiness. What God wants for us is repentance. And the third thing that we see here is this. This passage tells us how God fills us. So if you don't know that you're empty, beg God to help you see it. This is how God fills us. You realize these words that we read in verse 28 and 29, again, are at the heart of this book of Joel. And the first thing that God does in showing us how he fills us is this. God raises our expectations. God raises our expectations. This prophecy here is incredible. And it is telling God's people, whether they were going into exile or living in exile or hopefully anticipating the beginning of returning from exile, God is saying your visions for your life and the world are too small. There's another day that's coming in which the Holy Spirit will be poured out and he will be poured out on all people. And he's saying that this is my plan for the world and for your life. And your expectations are far too small. You need to expect the Holy Spirit to be with you and in you and changing you. And your view of yourself and your view of the world should be shaped by the Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit is doing in carrying out God's plan. So how does God fill us? He raises our expectations. And in doing that, he takes our eyes off of self and our plans and our methods, and he puts our heart's attention on the Spirit who will be poured out. 
And even when you go back and look at these verses, you find out that it is describing for us that the day is coming in which it doesn't matter whether you are male or female. It doesn't matter whether you are old or whether you are young. It doesn't matter, look at the last phrase of verse 29, what job you have, whether you are an employee or whether you sit on top of a Fortune 500, the Spirit will be poured out. That is God's plan for the world. Now, there's something else here about how God fills us. It's not just that he raises our expectations. Let's dive into that even more. God fills us with his spirit. So he doesn't just raise our expectations, doesn't just expand our vision and convince us that our, that our view of ourself is too small and view of the world is too small. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his spirit. You see, Joel chapter 2 is an incredible prophecy that is picked up by the apostle Peter in the book of Acts. And the apostle Peter said, he takes these words in the first phrase of verse 28, it will come in the following days. Peter says, the last days are here. Because in the Bible, the last days started with the incarnation, the coming of Jesus. Jesus' birth and life ushered in the last days in history. And Peter says, the last days are here. We're living in them. He said that in the first century, and it continues to today. We are living in the last days because Christ has come. And in these last days, Peter says, the Spirit is poured out. And then he proclaims the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and he proclaims that this, that these events, the coming of Christ has changed everything. And the Holy Spirit comes to pour out on us the significance and the power of what Jesus has done. So then you might be asking yourself this question. Well, how do I know? How do I know if the Spirit is filling me? How do I know if the Spirit is filling me? Because you see here in Joel 2, it says it's going to be poured out. And Peter takes the same words and said, oh yes, he's going to be poured out like a deluge in something you can't take back. But he also uses the phrase that we're filled, that we are Spirit-filled. So how do you know that God looks at us as empty people who are coming to a greater sense of their emptiness and repenting and seeing that God is changing us from heading in one direction and going into another direction. Changing us from where we're thinking about our small expectations to having grander expectations. How do you know that the Spirit is filling you? Well, I'll tell you there are three ways. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit leads us to talk about the wonderful works of God. So if you go back and read Acts chapter 2, you'll find around verse 11 that those who are filled with the Spirit were proclaiming the wonderful works of God. You see, it, something had happened in their mind and something had happened in their heart. 
what they began to talk about was what God has done in Jesus. You see, as followers of God, we don't just have teachings of God. We get to talk about, and the Spirit leads us to talk about the works of God. And the greatest work of God is redemption. Because redemption is where we get to see the grace of God and we realize that our relationship with God is not what we have done, but what God has done for us. The wonderful works of God is is that he came and lived among us and that he suffered and died. And these are real historical events and they have transformed the world and they are changing the world. It means that there's real resurrection, real power over death, real hope. And the Spirit fills us by leading us to want to talk about the great works of God. So we find ourselves just reveling in the fact of what God has done. And talking about the works of God becomes easier, becomes more natural. Because you see, we're not so much focused on our works and what we do, but God. So our our whole life is shifting away from self to God. Well, the second way we know that the Spirit is filling us is this. That the Holy Spirit compels us to focus on Jesus and being united to him. We know that we're filled by the Spirit When the focus of our lives is Jesus and being united to him, believing in him, being defined by him. If you were to go back and read the book of Acts, you'll find that each time, I think it's the first nine times that the Holy Spirit fills someone, it's always connected to Jesus and his work. I won't remember all the specific references for you, but I'll tell you the ones that I remember. Acts 2 with Peter's sermon is the first one. He's filled with the Spirit. And what is he doing? He's declaring what Jesus has done. He's trying to get us to focus our attention on Jesus. Then there's a time shortly after that in which Peter is arrested. And in chapter 4 of Acts, in the first part of chapter 4, Peter is again filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing while he's arrested? What is he doing when he's testifying before those who are about to keep him in prison or may release him? He says, this is what Jesus has done. He's lived. He's died. He's alive. What you find at the end of chapter 4 is that God's people are together being filled with the Spirit. And what are they doing? They're praying to the risen Christ. You might remember in Acts chapter 6 where you have all kinds of trouble going on in the day-to-day life of the church because there are people that have physical needs. So, people have to be set aside that help in the day-to-day distribution of needs for people. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. So, what are they doing? They're ministering in Christ's name, so that God's people are not just about word, but also deed and caring for the needy and the poor and the widow. Then you come to chapter 7, and you find this guy named Stephen who is full of the Holy Spirit. And what is he doing as rocks are hitting his body? He sees the risen Christ. 
and he longs to be with him. Then you find in chapter 9 and chapter 13 where Paul and this other guy named Barnabas are being sent out to plant churches and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They're going from town to town proclaiming Jesus and being united to him. You see, you can know when you are filled with the Spirit when the focus of your life is on Jesus and being united to him. And those verses I referenced for you may seem really abstract, so let me try to make them very concrete. It means this. When you are living out your calling like Peter, no matter what it is, when you're living out your calling, the Spirit fills you so that your job is unto the Lord. It's unto Jesus. It means that when you pray, you can pray full of the Spirit. Why? Because you are going to pray to Jesus. And in his name. It means even on your dying day. To be filled with the Spirit means that you are focused on Christ. And that as you take your last breath, he will be there for you, waiting. It means that when you're trying to figure out what to do to serve other people, what to do to help those around you, that you're thinking about what Christ has done to help you. Therefore, the mercy that you have received that is undeserved, you are willing to extend that mercy to others that don't deserve it. It means that when you have to change jobs or change callings or figure out what's next in your life, a.k.a. Paul and Barnabas, that you can be filled with the Spirit to go wherever God leads you. You see To be a spirit-filled person means that the focus of your life, whether you're dying or living, changing jobs or praying, helping those, or trying to figure out what to do with your own life, is that you get to focus on Jesus and being united to him. And the third way that you can tell that you're being filled by the spirit is this. The spirit gives you the capacity to become more and more like Jesus. So he doesn't just help you to declare the wonderful works of God's grace. He doesn't just help you to focus in your life on Jesus. The Holy Spirit is actually changing you. He's giving you the capacity. He is enabling you to become more and more like Christ. That is growth in the Bible. Christian growth is becoming more like the one you follow. Christian growth is becoming more and more like Jesus himself. So when you read through the scriptures and the gospels in particular, and you read what Jesus has done and how he lived and how he interacted, that's what the Spirit is working into me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is working into you. So when you read of Jesus on this earth, in the Middle East, When you read about him, knowing that he is a child of God, knowing that he can call the living and true God Father, the Spirit has given you the capacity to talk to God as if he is your Father, because he is. The Holy Spirit is working in you the capacity to cry out to God as you would an unbelievably loving, always faithful, present Father. It means that when you read through the life of Christ, 
you understand that Christ sees that his identity has been received, that God has given him an identity to become the God-man, to become the Savior, to become the head of the church, to become the shepherd, king. And you see, as an analogy, we, by the Spirit working in us, the capacity to be like Christ, is that we receive our identity from God. The identity that says we're made in his image. The identity that reminds us that we've rebelled in innumerable ways, but we are redeemed. And we're looking forward to restoration of all things, including our own hearts and bodies. You see, it means that we have the capacity to become like Christ, even in our character. When you read through the gospel accounts about Jesus, think about his character and know that to be filled with the Spirit means that he has given us the capacity to develop the same character as Jesus. So when you read the gospel accounts, you find that Jesus is unbelievably humble, and yet he is supremely confident. You read through the gospel accounts, and you find that Jesus is absolutely a man who is full of integrity, and yet somehow it's without rigidity. You see that Jesus had this strong sense of calling in his life. The Father sent me to do this. I was sent by the Father to do that. And yet, unbelievable trust in his Father. You see that as Jesus lived among us, that he was always, always, always committed to truth. But that commitment to truth was saturated with compassion. You see, these are the things that being filled with the Spirit works into our lives. Well, I'll try to summarize it for you like this. I don't know if you know this or not. Some of you certainly do if you've been around me a little bit. I have a terrible sense of direction. Um, I, I just, I don't have a good sense of direction at all. And that uh, lack of good sense of direction has only gotten worse through all the quarantine. Because, you know, I wasn't going out as much. I wasn't going to as many places. Uh, I wasn't traveling. I didn't go on study leave. I wasn't going to Raleigh as much. Uh, I wasn't getting out. I was going to very few places. And then at that, fewer frequency of going to those few places. And I'm the kind of person, and in that part of my life, if I'm not getting out and I'm not driving, and I'm not going to different places, I will, I will forget how I got there. So thankfully, I have this thing called a GPS. You all probably have some of this on your phone and maybe even have it in your car. The GPS is super, super helpful for me because it can even delineate, you know, go 500 feet and turn right. Go two-tenths of a mile and turn left. You know what I'm talking about. And I don't have a great sense of direction and having a GPS is really, really helpful. But friends, the truth is, most of us want a GPS that delineates every few hundred feet in tenths of a mile as a map and analogy for our lives. We want God to tell us every little detail all the time. We think of his word even at times as this type of GPS that tells us every little thing about every detail in our lives. And I'm telling you, it's not that way at all. What God does with us as, as we live our lives is far better than giving us a GPS. 
or thinking of the Bible as GPS. God gives us a passenger. He gives us someone to be with us. He gives us someone who is alongside of us through everything in life. And that person that's a passenger is thoroughly acquainted with everything. This person has been around forever. That is to say, they are homegrown. They're a native. They know the ins and outs of everything. They are far better than a GPS. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us by God to fill us. And he fills us so that he continues to guide us and lead us all the way home. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for challenging us. Thank you for giving us your word to dive into together, even this prophecy in Joel that is profound and significant in the history of your people, in the history of what you're doing in the world. God, would you give us a deep sense of wanting what you want for us? Would you help us to realize in new ways how spiritually bankrupt and empty we are so that we might repent and turn from emptiness to Jesus? Would you continue to fill us and remind us that you have given us the Spirit to make us more like Christ and to focus our lives on him. Help us not to settle for methods and tricks, but to trust the passenger, to trust the person who is with us, who will never leave us or forsake us, and who will bring us home. We pray this for your glory, for our good, for our today, for our tomorrow, for our forever. Amen. Beloved, God loves his people. He didn't spare his own son so that with him he might give you all things freely. If you would like to talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, go on our website, hit the contact, send us an email. We'd love to talk with you. If this sermon or the ones prior to this have stirred up things in your life and you need someone to talk to about or pray with you, reach out to us. We'd love to set up a meeting. We'd love to talk with you on the phone if we can't meet with you in person and, and, and pray. But know that God is absolutely determined to bless you and to bless me because of Christ. And that even though we can't find very many blessings anywhere else, we can always find the best blessing, the truest blessing that will never fade away in God and what he has said to us because of Christ. So hear this blessing and try to live as if you actually believe that it is true. And may the Spirit fill me and may the Spirit fill you to lean into this and to live like we've taken it to the deepest part of our heart, our lives, and our soul. Now the God of hope is going to fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
you and me, we may abound in that hope for his glory forever. Amen. Go in peace.